Do you know how to put an elephant in a refrigerator? You open the door, you put the elephant in, and you shut the door. Do you know how to put a giraffe in a refrigerator? You open the door, you take out the elephant, you put in the giraffe, and you shut the door. Similarly, I know this seems like a stretch, but give me a moment. Similarly, I one time tried to spray my yard with 2,4-D. I did look up this morning how to pronounce 2,4-D, the actual, and I can't, dichlorophenyl something. And I, I wanted to spray my yard with that to kill the blasted dandelions. They are the bane of my yard's existence. I hate them. And everything, everything died. It came to light that I maybe didn't clean out the sprayer from the Roundup. So what I sprayed was 2,4-D Roundup. And everything died. We all know better than that. Maybe. Maybe we know better than that when we're dealing with the grass in our yard. Maybe when it comes to life, we forget some of those same principles are in play. Let's read out of Ephesians chapter 4. And don't worry, I understand that I gave you an introduction that seemed to have no point and didn't tie it to anything that we're about to do. It should come back into play later and make sense. Ephesians chapter 4, we're looking at verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We start off in verse 17 with a, a word or, or a phrase that we're actually used to out of this chapter, we're used to out of this book, and he says that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We're told to not walk in a certain way. Well, if we go back to Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of Christ, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So he starts out this chapter by telling us how we are to look and walk. And now, most of the way through the chapter, he's telling us what we must not look like and what we must not walk like juxtaposing these two ideas, the idea of how we are to walk versus how the Gentiles walk. 
for the purpose, right? Us believers, Gentiles not, for the purpose of, as he comes to the end of this section we're looking at, and he tells us that we must put off our old self and put on our new self. The purpose of juxtaposing those two positions is so that we can see and recognize what we are to shun and put away from us as we put on the likeness of Christ. So he starts, do not walk. In fact, more emphatically than do not walk, he says, you must not walk. He's imploring us with a command. It's like shouting. Why? Why would it be so important for him to start it in that way? Because as people... we have a tendency to go back to our old way of life. As believers in Jesus, understanding that he gave his life for us, that he made us alive in him, we have a tendency to revert back to our old way of processing, our old way of living, of walking, of thinking, of being, because we're still broken, though mended. So what do the Gentiles walk like? You must not walk as the Gentiles do. So how do they walk? They walk in the futility of their minds. That's not to say they're unintelligent. And we have a, an issue there where we have a tendency or we can easily make it seem like anybody who disagrees with us is unintelligent. That's not the point. In fact, it's the opposite of the point. Being futile in your thinking does not mean you're unintelligent. It means you're wrong. But there is a huge difference. Not only are they futile in their minds, they're darkened in their understanding. So those two ideas go together very closely. So one says they're futile in their minds. They can't trust their own brains and their own thinking because their own brains and their own thinking can't get us to where we need to be, which is where? The mystery of the gospel. Hidden by God for ages beyond our ability to conjure up and think, which is why you can't trust your own minds because God is beyond us. He has done more than we could have imagined happening but not only are they futile in their minds, they're darkened in their understanding. If you flip back to Romans chapter 1, it, this is the clearest picture of what Paul is saying right here. Romans chapter 1, it's an incredible passage about the reality of God seen in all places. And in verse 18, we're going to start there. 21 is where we're getting. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unright, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they the people who are unrighteous unwilling to accept him are without excuse for although they knew God they knew God had to be there that's what it's saying they see God in creation. They see God all around them in the complexity of people, in the abstractness of our minds. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's the exact same set of ideas. Because they rejected God, did not limit their intelligence, it limited their ability to perceive and understand. And their thinking became futile. All of the brilliant thoughts that they had had the wrong premises, the wrong ideas that started them out. And with those wrong ideas, they reached wrong conclusions. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Things that are so evident and plain to us. They can't grasp. We see that in the culture all around us. Things that make absolutely no sense because they start with the premises that God can't exist and that morality is whatever we want it to be. They reach conclusions that are so wild, it's unreal. But if you just followed their thinking, and this is where we can't pretend these are unintelligent people, when you followed their logical progression of thought, they're right. They just start with the wrong information. So starting with the wrong information, they reach a wrong conclusion, but it's logical and it makes sense. And if we teach our children that these are unintelligent people, even by the way we interact about them, when they get to somewhere where we're not there and they hear the logical progression of thought by their teachers, professors, friends, whomever, they will likely give in to it because the logic is there. It's just futile and darkened in thinking and understanding. The Gentiles, those without the Spirit in their life, their thinking is futile, their understanding is darkened. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to what? Their hardness of heart. So now not only are they, they futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, they're alienated from God. And that's an important word as the scripture uses it because we have a, a pretty good ability to understand if there's death that leads to hell and life that leads to heaven, there's an alienation, a separation between those two things, right? You either... Don't have a touchdown or you do have a touchdown. You don't get half of a touchdown sort of idea. And we get that. There's a separation of these two positions. But if we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, he uses the same idea only in reverse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says, once you, believers in Christ, were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, the former, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, which means aliens and wanderers, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So we become the aliens. In the same way, to the same extent, that the unbelieving world is alienated from the life in Christ, which is complete, not partial. Remember the half a touchdown? 
we aren't allowed to say we're in this camp, but we're half over there. We're alienated, separated, exiled from sojourners in this world. We're not mingled, mixed. We're here, we're engaging, we're on mission for Christ, but we're not part. In the same way that they are not connected to the life of Christ. And when we start to think about it that way, it makes this a whole lot bigger. It's a lot bigger than our mindset. It's a lot bigger than our thoughts. It's a lot bigger than us. This is a total separation of the Christian world from the unbelieving world. Again, that does not mean that we don't engage with the world. This is like Italian dressing. We're there and we get shaken up and sort of mixed with it, but we're never really mixed with it. Right? The oil always is separate from the water. There's this intentional separation, alienation from the world. But it's because of their hardness of heart. Did you catch that? They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. What kind of hard heart is it talking about? If we go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, he says this. This is the prophet, and Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. 36, 26 says this. And I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It says God speaking to his people, if they repent, turn to him, have faith in him, he will remove that hardness of their heart and replace the hard heart with a living heart. Jesus goes so far as to say that God did not intend for people to get married and divorced. Okay, this is not judgmental. This is just a reality. God did not intend for people to get married and then divorced. And the people ask him, then why did Moses command us to do it? Right? He commanded us, give them a certificate of divorce and send them out of your house. To which Jesus responds, it wasn't a command. It was a concession because of your hardness of heart. This is God's people, unwilling to be forgiving and unwilling to be soft in their heart. This is God and Ezekiel speaking to his people saying, you've got a hard heart, but I will remove it and I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And then in Ephesians, the Gentiles are ignorant. They are, and that's again, not unintelligent. It's just ignorant. They don't know. Their minds are futile. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated because of ultimately their hardness of heart, which is derived from pride. And when we think ourselves more highly than we are, when we think ourselves more central than we are, then we begin to be prideful. And that start of pride drives us to a hard heart because a hard heart says, I can care about me and all of the pain out there doesn't matter. A soft heart says, I see the people of value all around me and I have to care about them. I can't not care about them 
because God has given me a heart of flesh that feels for people, that senses maybe what they're going through or hears what they're going through and cares. That doesn't mean we're all the same level of empathetic. It means that we're the same level of not self-centered. They, the Gentiles, have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here we are back to them. They're futile in their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from God. They've got a hard heart. And now they are what? Calloused. Again, they don't care. That's the pride component. They've given themselves up to sensuality and they're greedy, desirous, looking for opportunity to indulge in sensuality or impurity. That's the world. And so Paul has already started this juxtaposition of the two positions, life in Christ, death in the world. And now he's starting to outline what that looks like. And we need to not just jump ahead and say, obviously, I don't look like that because we might look like that some. So we have to ask ourselves, do I look futile in my mind? Do I rely on my own thinking? Is it how smart I am? Because no matter how smart you are, if you rely on your intelligence, it will lead you away from Christ in your brokenness, unless directed and guided and reliant upon his spirit? Are you futile in your thinking? Are you darkened in your understanding? Do you sense alienation from God and or his people? Do you have a hard heart? Do you give yourself up to sensuality, the desires of the things that you can grab in the moment and feel and, and be thrilled by momentarily? Are you greedy to practice impurity? Do you look for opportunities? Be honest with yourself. Do you fit that? I have to be honest with myself. Do I fit that? Sometimes. But the goal is to not. So how do we not? Right? We've just painted a very bleak picture. How do we not be there? They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but, and this is the transition. Remember, we talked about but God all of those sermons ago. Seems like forever. It was only about two months. But all those sermons where we talked about but God and what he was doing. This isn't a but God phrase, but it's that same sort of contrast. Here's the world, but in contrast to that, you. But this is not the way you learned about Christ. You didn't learn about him because we were so smart. You didn't learn about him because we were trying to get something from you. You didn't learn about him based on our efforts and desires, but based on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's in a nutshell what he's implying. But this is not the way you learned about Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What does that mean? 
Paul's basically writing to these people whom he's obviously not with. And his comment there is, I'm going to assume you're believers. I'm going to assume you are actually people who have put your faith in Jesus for real. Not just in pretense, not just in look, but you have actually really done this. Assuming that you heard about Christ this way, which is the only way, he says, I'm making the assumption you're believers. Why is that important? It's important because this is not a set of commands about to come for those who don't believe. And we, as God's children, must keep that in mind. Because if we engage with the world in a way that says, oh, here's the command for how we're supposed to live, and we expect them to look the way that we are supposed to look, what's the problem? The problem is we are alienated from each other in those first verses, right? They're in a different camp. It would be like going to a Packers game expecting people to wear purple. That's what it would be like. It's not going to happen. And if it does, people probably throw things at you. <laughs> Assuming that you're believers, I have a command for you. If you're not, we could go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes about avoiding people who are filled with greed and sensuality and impurity. And he says, not that I am talking about the people of the world, because to do that, you'd have to leave the world. I'm talking about believers. So there's this different expectation for those who are believers for, versus those who are not. And that's the same thing we have here, a distinction of position. They are alienated in that camp. We are with God in this camp. So now that we understand we're talking to believers, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. That manner of life, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and 4 and 5, that manner of life which was dead in its sins and transgressions in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in disobedience. And then verses four and five, you were dead, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, verses one and two, made us alive together with Christ. That's where we are. We've had this transition, this change. Our former way of life is the dead one. That is not to then be what? Our current way of life. How do you put a giraffe in a refrigerator? You open the door, you take out the elephant, you put the giraffe in. How do you not kill your grass with 2,4-D after you've used your sprayer for Roundup? You clean it out. In the same way, the command is twofold and progressive and in a particular order. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life. Then put on your new self. But if we try to put on our new self on top of our old self... It's just adding 2,4-D to Roundup. 
It's like going to basketball practice, getting done, coming home, and sitting on your mom's good sofa. And then saying, oh, I could just throw on a clean shirt and I'm okay. Better yet, I'll throw on a clean shirt over top of my old shirt. My kids might have done this. That is not a clean moment. On the outward, you might look sort of cleanish, but you still stink. You're still grimy and dirty. And if we try to say, oh, God, I want this new life, so just, just add that to who I currently am, we have nothing. It's like the Pharisees, and Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, and you're full of death on the inside. Now, it's not exactly the same because they weren't believers in Jesus. And if we are, and then we seek to put on our new self on top of this old self, we're not getting rid of the old self. We don't lose our salvation, but we still look dirty. So the command, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. You know what happens if we don't put off our old self as a group? You get to James chapter 3, verse 16. And he says this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. If we, as a body, as a family, don't collectively put off our old self and we try to just put on nice-looking good self on top of it, we end up in disorder and every vile practice. Which does not sound a lot like humility or selflessness. It sounds an awful lot like pride and selfishness. Put off your old self, which is all of these things, your former manner of life, right? Imagine Lazarus. Jesus calls him out of the grave after four days. Everything stinks on him, right? Well, he doesn't anymore because his flesh is no longer rotting and decaying. But all of that would have gotten in the cloth he was wrapped up in. What would it have been like if Jesus calls him out of the grave, Lazarus walks out in John 11, and he says, hey guys, just, just leave this stuff on me. I think it looks cool. It's gross. It's dirty. It's stinky. But that's what we do, myself included. When I say to Jesus, oh, it is so great that you saved me, but I just want to sin a little bit. I just want to be able to do my own thing. I, I, want, to, I want to make this, this moment, just this moment, Jesus, about me. I want to get what I want. And when we do that, we are putting on our old, rotten, dirty self on top of this new self that Jesus has made in us. So how do we do that? He gives us a clue. 
Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. January 1st, 2023. I will always remember, at least until tomorrow, the first day that I gave the Romans 12 sermon here. It's not the same sermon every year, but it's the same passage. And it's an easy one to remember because it was actually January 1st. What does it say? But be transformed by the renewing of your minds, by the changing of your thought process. It's not just by knowing more information. More information is great and helpful, but it's this transition of thought process to engage with the world differently. And if we're to put off our old self, we must have our minds renewed or we fall right back into old patterns, right back into old processes, right back into old thoughts, right back into all of which this camp looks like that we started our lives in. Be renewed or be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Here, put off your old self by the renewing of the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. So here's, here's the, the dual command, right? First, put off the old. Now put on the new. What is the new? The likeness of Jesus. True righteousness. True humility. Sorry, true righteousness and true holiness. Which looks like what? The condescending of yourself to something beneath you. And condescending has a bad connotation. Because we usually mean it as an insulting way to somebody else, or you're just being condescending, right? But Jesus condescended. He came down from heaven, lowered himself to our level, and came as a baby. That's what Jesus did. And if that's the type of humility that he can have, it's the type of humility that we can have. Micah 6.8, God writes this through the prophet. So the prophet writing, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? If you ever start thinking that the Old Testament is all of this just sacrifice animals, do whatever you want, sacrifice animals, do whatever you want, that is not what it says. Micah 6, 8, what does he require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God? Not to do sacrifices. Not to do this stuff that makes up for your other stuff but to do justice, which is another way of saying show righteousness outwardly. Those two words are the same in Greek. Justice, the outward expression of inward righteousness. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. James chapter four, verse six, picks up that idea and moves forward saying, but he, God, gives more grace. So we have all these problems, but God gives more grace. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then we come to John 3.30, which we all know John 3.16. We read it this morning, but what does John 3.30 say? It's the apostle, sorry, it's the Baptist John. People come to him and they say, John, we have a problem. You're baptizing here? 
but Jesus just set up camp a half mile down the road. I'm paraphrasing. They didn't actually say it that way. Jesus just set up a half mile down the road and people are going to him instead of you. How are you going to get them back? Do you know what John's response is? Good. They should be going to him. I was just the herald proclaiming that he was coming. John 3.30. He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. His value must go up. Mine must go down. Why? Because he is the important one. And if I try to usurp his role and I become greater and he becomes less, then all I've done is made an idol of myself saying I'm more important than Jesus. Now we don't do that exactly because Jesus didn't set up shop a half mile down the road baptizing people. Now. But we do the same thing in concept. When he has made us from dead to alive, from old self to new, and then we say, but I want this one to be about me. I want people to know me. I want people to like me. I want people to give to me. I want to get what I want. I want X, and it's not happening. And now I'm unhappy about it because I didn't get what I wanted. And all of a sudden, we've made it about us. That's the old self. And we are to put that off. How? By the renewing of your minds so that you could put on the new self. And this whole putting on and putting off idea should bring another putting on idea out to mind out of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. It might be on the same page if you're in a paper Bible. It might be on the same set of pages that you're looking at right now. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 20. The armor of God. We are to put on continually this armor. And we're going to spend a lot of time looking at it in a few months. But we must be putting it on because it's a battle. And Satan doesn't want us to win this battle. He will fight you in this battle. Your enemy will try to discourage and destroy you. So you put on the armor of God. So that when you face the devil, you may what? Not die. It's not a winning. It's a not dying. The command is to stand firm. Not to attack. Not to be victorious. To stand firm. We put on the armor as we put on our new self. We put on the armor when we see ourselves cleaned of the old self and we don't want to be like it. We put on the armor of God. Because this camp is alienated from God, darkened in their understanding, futile in their thinking. We are to have true righteousness, true humility, a humility centered on Jesus, or sorry, true holiness, a holiness centered on Jesus, pointing to and proclaiming Him. We are to, in order to get there, put off everything that is our old self, our former life and to put on the new self which is the fruit of the spirit if we want to look at it in terms of fruit you could just read galatians chapter 5 verses 19 to 23 19 to 21 is called the fruit of the flesh 21 and 20 or 22 and 23 is the fruit of the spirit 
So if you want to see what characteristics, not only will we look at that next week, what it looks like, not, and it's all, it's all character, it's not external. It shows itself external, but the fruit of the spirit, or fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. If you want to know what that looks like, read Galatians 5, 19 to 23. Ask the spirit to live that out in you so that you're not futile in your thinking, darkened in your understanding, so that you're not living like this camp, but rather living as your new self. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and the opportunity that we have to know you to love you, to honor you. We pray, Father, that you would. We pray that you would grant us the strength of your spirit to be the men and women that you call us to be. God, we aren't capable of making that happen on our own. So we ask that you would use your spirit to change us and guide us and make us, that you would be pleased with us as your people. We love you and we need you.